Have you ever felt overlooked? I'm going to go on the assumption that you probably have. I was thinking about my journey. You know, I, I really love to learn. I, you know, some people don't like the new challenge, like, oh, I've got to figure out this new thing, but I always enjoy learning new things. But I was not always super um, invested and interested in my school. Like when I would grow up in high school, sometimes it was just boring. It wasn't engaging. I wasn't that interested. But, you know, you have three knee surgeries and you stop doing sports and you got to commit yourself somewhere. And so uh, in college, when I went off to school, I went all in on school. And so um, I was in uh, the honors program. I did a bunch of um, extracurricular things. I was in student government. I uh, I did a lot of things in undergrad. And so uh, when it came to graduation, it kind of became an embarrassment of, um, you know, they give you different kinds of medals and ribbons and things like that. And so I've got a picture uh, for you, an old grainy photo of me graduating from undergrad there with uh, trying to survive all the medals there. Uh, and, and so it feels nice and feels comforting when you feel like you get recognized. And, and in that photo, when we moved on from that, my wife and I got married that next month and we moved to Atlanta, Georgia the next month. And it was a busy summer. And then I uh, started my master's program in Atlanta. And it was it was great. I really appreciate my time there. My seminary degree and my concentration was in academic research. And so there was only a couple of us in that concentration field, but you were trying to do practical ministry as well as study to um, be invested in creating theological environments for people in higher education. And, and so in that program, you had to write a, a thesis, like a big master's thesis. And I interned with a professor and uh, ended up being one of just uh, two of us that were accepted into PhD programs. And so uh, we were getting ready to graduate from seminary and they have this big awards night. And so you're sitting there and they have all these random kinds of awards. But I got nothing. And, you know, there's something in you that's just, it has a hard time with that. Like, when you feel like you've really tried hard, you've, in, you've invested, and it's clearly somebody has seen stuff in you. And, but then it, it's just tough when you just don't feel seen. And so I, I really appreciate I had a, a, some of my friends afterwards who came up and, like, on their own just voiced, what was that? Like, you should have gotten something. And, and you know, you need those people in your life who uh, maybe you don't feel like you should stand up for yourself sometimes and people who are just willing to be like, hey, that, that doesn't seem right. But it doesn't feel good when you feel like you're overlooked. But I think that's a place a lot of us sit in. A lot of us have those moments where you just feel like you didn't get the recognition, whether that's at home or work or, or wherever it might be for yourself. And so today's story I'm excited about because it is a story about a prophet, a king, a family, all looking at who does God see and who does God call us to see. And so we're going to talk today about the prophet Samuel. And Samuel's story, I think, can change the way we look at others around us as well as how we see ourselves. And so to get into the story, we had to say a little bit about the context of 1 Samuel 16, which was our text that we we're going to be in. Uh, the prophet Samuel was like the leader of all of Israel. He was there before there were kings. And if you've heard any of Samuel's story, you might remember that people say, we want a king like everybody else. And Samuel takes it personally. And God says, hey, don't worry about it. They're actually attacking me right now, not you. I know it feels that like they're attacking you. But Samuel gets involved in the process of anointing a king, which isn't easy when you've kind of been the leader. And he anoints Saul to be king 
But the problem with Saul is sometimes he thinks pretty highly of himself and he decides, you know what, I'm supposed to do this, but maybe I can do it another way and I'll try another strategy and, you know, I can handle this myself. And finally, in 1 Samuel 15, God tells Samuel, I'm not picking Saul anymore. I will pick a new king. And Samuel grieves for a few reasons. Even if you've had a rough relationship, it's not easy when you've been invested in Saul's life and you've worked alongside him. You're hoping the best for him and then suddenly it's falling apart. You're like, what do I do? And so he's grieving the loss that he's going to feel with Saul. He's grieving the loss that, has, have I just failed? Is this all falling apart? And Samuel has to go tell Saul. That's not easy. And so Samuel tells Saul, God is moving on. And it says that Samuel and Saul part ways and that Samuel never sees Saul again until the day Saul died. Talk about rifts. That relationship was torn apart. But, you know, Saul leaves as king. Samuel leaves as prophet. But it's in that that we enter into our story today from 1 Samuel 16. Verse 1 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn, horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. There's something really interesting in that, that the Lord notices something in Samuel of, you've kind of been sitting in this grief for a while. We don't know how long it extends between 1 Samuel 15 and 16, but no matter how much time has passed, Samuel is still sitting in the grief of what he's just had to go through. And so God comes to him and says, hey, how long are you going to sit there? You, I've still got stuff for you. I still have a mission ahead of you. I still have renewal, but you're sitting there living in regret. And so I think about how easy it is for us to live in regret. You start thinking about all those decisions you made. Well, what could I have done differently and you just get stuck there where you just don't feel like you can get out of that box of regrets. And for some of us, they, they even have like a fallacy tied to this, of the sunken cost fallacy. Let's say you have a car that's had problems and you spend a bunch of money to fix it up and then it has more problems. And you're like, well, I don't want to make my last investment worthless. I guess I have to keep investing in this car. I got to keep repairing it. And at some point you're like, what am I doing? I'm just throwing so much at this thing that's just failing, it's just falling apart. At some point, I have to move on. But it's hard when you've invested something, you want to just keep cultivating it. But God has the wisdom to ask Samuel, hey, are you sure it's not time to move on? And so he invites him to go make uh, an anointing of a new king, go to Bethlehem, go to Jesse, and he has sons. And one of those sons, I will show you, is the one who will be the king. And Samuel has a very legitimate question. He says, but God, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. That makes sense. Uh, anybody want to be like kind of in, in this treacherous zone of, well, we have a king, but I'm going to go pick the next one. And so he's like, you know, God, I, I hear your plan, but how on earth can I go anoint somebody else? Saul will kill me. If you ever need a cover story in life, apparently God is really good at one. Because here's what verse 2 and 3 says. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what shall, what you shall do and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. So Sam's like, well, Saul's going to kill me. I've got an alibi. And so he tells the story, okay, bring an animal along. You'll make a sacrifice. If anybody asks you what you're up to, you're making a sacrifice. But you better invite Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice. And it's kind of interesting because, like, this isn't the only cover story God has provided in the Bible. Uh, if you remember the, the story of the Exodus, Moses is supposed to go ask the Pharaoh to let the people go. But what they ask is, my people want to go worship God in the wilderness for a few days. Can we get a few days in the wilderness? A few days head start. But there's something interesting here of God saying, okay, I understand you're in danger here. You can honestly speak from the heart. You're going to go have a sacrifice. But I still have a mission for you nonetheless. And so if you've ever had God give you an alibi and say, okay, what other problems do you have with this plan? Uh, Samuel does what probably most of us would do then and say, okay, I guess you've ruined my excuse. I have to go forward now. Uh, I can't think of a second excuse fast enough. And so Samuel goes along with the story. He goes to Bethlehem. It's about 10 miles away. And he is not quite into the city yet. And the elders of the city already notice him and they get scared. Because apparently 10 miles isn't that far. We don't know how long this time has lasted, but but when you hear little rumors that the prophet and the king are not on good talking terms, apparently that's good gossip. And so the elders of the city come out and say, do you come peaceably? What's going on here? Are you okay? Like, I don't, I don't want to get involved in anything. Like, I don't want to be in, like, please keep me out of this. Are you here on good terms? Sam, yes, 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 I'm here peaceably. Guess what? I'm going to make a sacrifice. Anybody want to come with me to the sacrifice? He heard the alibi. He's using it well. And so Samuel enters into the city and all this tension, all of this unease going on. And he has still more learn, more to learn in the story. So he meets Jesse. He invites Jesse and his sons. They go to the sacrifice. And Jesse shows off his sons. He's got this parade of, have you met so-and-so? Have you met so-and-so? Uh, he's got seven sons there in this part of the story. And if you're like me, you'd be like, okay, I, what's the name? What's the name? I got to remember these names. But the very first son, the oldest son is shown first, Eliab. And so let me read this for you. In verse six, it says, when they, Jesse and his sons, came to the sacrifice, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely his anointed is now before the Lord. Pause there. He sees that first son and he's like, that's definitely the guy. And I appreciate that he had at least enough wisdom that he didn't blurt that out loud. First thought, oh, that's definitely it. Thankfully, he kept that thought to himself because it's not going to go that direction. But he sees this, this son and he says, that must be the person. And it says, and it goes on in the text to say, don't look at the appearance or on the height of his stature for I have rejected him, for the Lord doesn't see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It specifically calls out, I know he's tall, but that's not the only criteria we're going to use. I know his stature looks big. And that's a really interesting little tidbit in the Hebrew Bible text because uh, Samuel has only known one type of king, Saul. 
And the Bible is very clear when it talks about Saul's appearance that he has a specific feature. He's very tall. 1 Samuel 9, 2 says that uh, Saul's dad had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the Israelites more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. 1 Samuel 10, 23 says, When Saul took his stand among the people, he was head and shoulders taller than any of them. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see the one whom the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. Samuel thought he knew what a king should look like. His past experience said, this is what a king looks like. That tall, uh, handsome person, that's the right pick. Of course, that's got to be it. And I think this leads us to the, the box that we have to figure out how to get out of for ourselves. We interact with people in our lives, and they shape the way we interact with the next person in our life. If you see someone and, and they treat you well, the next person you see that reminds you of them, you will think, oh, this is a good person. This is a, I'm going to have a good relationship here. And so when you have good experiences, you treat people better. Uh, if you have bad experiences, though, you're kind of on alert. Like, I don't know what to do with this person. And that person has nothing to do with it. Like, I didn't lie to you. I didn't mistreat you. Like, and they're not sure why you're being so cold and standoffish, but Sometimes if you've had bad experiences, you expect the worst from the next person that fits all of those categories, that looks like someone. Uh, if you see someone who reminds you of an ex, you might be shuddering, like, I don't want to deal with that person. Or you might find yourself attracted because there was a reason. Um, but the way that you've experienced people in the past affects the way that you then treat people in the future. And there's really a third category. Sometimes you've had no experiences of a certain box. And so you don't know how to treat someone. The challenge is, is what we don't know we're afraid of. We get anxious because you're like, I don't have any data points to make me feel comfortable. And so you could pick all sorts of categories of boxes of people that if you didn't grow up around someone in that category, you just don't know what to expect. And so you start being a little uneasy and uncertain. You know, I think about if you were living in Europe, you're going to be used to people speaking a lot of languages around you. But sometimes for us in America, we don't see as many different languages spoken. And so it throws you off. You're like, wait, you're not used to it. Um, but that's just because we're not used to it. And it creates certain reactions in us. But we just see people skin deep and then we think we understand or, or we get afraid or we start distancing ourselves because we have this box. And I think that there are some people that it's easier for us to put these boxes around, to make these snap decisions on. Of course, we think we understand them. Of course, we think we know them. And again, people believe different things. They think different things. It doesn't mean everybody you have to meet. You already fully agree with them that you, you think the same way. But just we respond so much based on just the outward appearance. So I was thinking about some of the people that it's easiest for us in our society and our news, and our radio shows, and podcasts of the easy people it is to say they're different and maybe create fear is the weird discourses we have around trans kids in today's society. It only comes up because people want to talk about bathrooms or athletics, and it's built out of the situation because you don't know someone in this situation. Because I guarantee you, if you know someone who's thinking about that they don't feel like they fit in their body, 
They don't know if they fit in their family and their friendships. They are not thinking, you know, I want to be really awesome at basketball. That's not what they're up to. But really quickly, we just say, I think I understand this box. And if you haven't experienced it, you're just really afraid. But even if you agree or disagree with someone, the problem is when we've judged someone's box without ever getting to know somebody or knowing their heart, is you can never have a conversation. You can never learn or understand someone and what they're going through. We just take the easy way out. We're like Samuel and we see the tall kid and like, oh, that's a king for good and for worse. And so God tells Samuel in the story, don't look at the outward appearance, look at the heart. And Samuel has to learn that because he felt pretty confident. I know what a king looks like. Again, he wasn't looking for a queen. Think of all the different boxes he assumes is the right choice. And so Samuel says, okay, all right, God, if it's not Eliab, okay, let's, let's get the next people. So then Abinadab comes up and then Shema. And then we get the middle kids who don't even get names. Some middle kids might appreciate that. Four more brothers come through unnamed. Okay, no, no, no. And Samuel's got to be confused because he's had seven brothers come by and he's like, God, you told me you were going to tell me who's the right pick. I'm going to look a little foolish here because we've said no to everybody. And then we learned that there's actually someone who's uh, ignored even more than the middle brothers without names in this text. It is David who doesn't even get an invite with his family to this, this barbecue. And so David's like the original male Cinderella story. They're having a ball and he's doing chores. And so you've got Samuel and, and, and this dignified person and the brothers and the dad and everybody's come together and they're, and they're like, hey, Jesse, do you have any other sons? Because I'm confused here. And he's like, well, you know, I do have the youngest. But, you know, he's looking after the sheep. And Samuel's like, well, I'm not doing anything else until you go get him and bring him back. And I love that of like, he didn't just say like, oh, okay, like, well, he's the youngest, let's disregard it. Okay, well, let's refigure this out. But we're going to pause right now. We're going to ask for him to get here and then we will continue. And so they go and they get David and he's brought to uh, this experience. And he looks at him and he sees this young uh, kind of scrappy kid. But I wonder like if we know what it's like to be David in that story. If, if you know what it's like that you're not even invited to the table, you're not invited to the party, like we're going to make some decisions, but like you're such an afterthought, you're not even anywhere to be seen. And I wonder if you feel that right now, whether that's in work life and friendships and family stuff of just unseen. I think if we were honest, more people than you expect raise your hand at feeling unseen. Maybe you feel like you've been working hard, nobody notices you. Maybe you feel like you've been trying to be vulnerable and open up and, and try to make relationships work, but friendships aren't getting stronger. Your work's not more rewarding. Your life isn't what you'd hoped it'd be. Even if others don't see you, the beauty of this text is, is that God sees you. 
And so God knows there's another son out there. God sees David, even though the family doesn't see him in that moment. And so when David comes up, the text describes him as ruddy. I don't know if that's the adjective you want. Um, he's ruddy. He's got some sort of either reddish skin or hair. He's not ginger in the way that we talk about it, but maybe that's a helpful little illusion for you to think about there with ruddy. He is handsome, but it does not say that he's tall like Saul or his older brother. And so how does Samuel know David is the right choice? Because he doesn't have eyes to figure that out himself. Verse 12 says that the Lord said, rise and anoint him for this is the one. And I love that it has that language of rising up because he had been grieving, he had felt down, and there's something about being lifted up by trying to lift somebody else up. That would you stand up, hey, go over to David. He needs to be raised up. He needs to be anointed. He needs to be lifted up today. And so if you're feeling down, you might think about just how do I lift somebody else up in my life? Instead of thinking about the woe is me of like, okay, I'm going to go see somebody else that feels unseen. And so anointing was this act that was like commitment-based, allegiance-based, kind of contractual of I'm committing to supporting you. And for God to say, Samuel, anoint him, God is saying, David, I am going to support you. You might not feel ready for this. You might not understand this, but you have my support. I will be with you. And that involves Samuel of Samuel saying, I know that I might die for this kind of act, but I'm going to stand up and I'm going to anoint you. I'm with you. I support you. I, I pledge that I'll, I will be of help to you. And so Samuel takes that horn of oil and he anoints David in the presence of his brothers. That feels again like the Cinderella scene, the, the, the shoe fits, right? David gets this anointing. And then it says, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. It didn't just make a small impact in David's life. There's a mighty impact of this one moment of anointing of God sees you, God is with you. Think about if you felt so unseen, just feeling that appreciation, feeling that presence of just lifting your shoulders up, of feeling that, that weight taken off of you, that God is going to move in your life, that you are not walking in vain, but God is with you. And so the Spirit of the Lord did not come, you know, gingerly, pun. It came mightily. And so, if you don't feel appreciated or valued, know that you can bring value to those around you. You can see them with fresh eyes. You can anoint them. You can lift them up. And so, what if we were to rise up and anoint people in our lives? What if we learned to live, like lean into renewal instead of regret? I know that there's plenty of things to regret. The, it's, it's kind of a frustrating thing of our brains that we can easily go back to some of our worst moments. And it's easy to sit there and to fall deeper and deeper into despair about it. But what if we let God renew us and lift us up? What if we did the work of truly seeing people, of not making assumptions, not doing the skin deep vision at people to say, I want to know them. So we can talk, we'll learn things that we agree on, we'll learn things we disagree on, but I want to see them and not what I assume is that, you know, we don't often, you know, we're just, it's hard. We have to spend the time to get to see someone. 
skin deep is easy. We don't often wear our hearts on our sleeves where you just know people immediately. But what if we invested the time and the energy to get to know people that we don't understand, that we don't see, and see where God's at work in their lives? What if we just committed to supporting and anointing someone? If you feel alone, what if you just committed to, you know, I see this person, God, give me the person that I need to be investing in, that I need to be mentoring, that I need to be alongside of, that they just need your presence. What difference could we make just by trying to see someone the way that God sees them? I think that could lead to some mighty change. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we ask that you might open our eyes, that we might see people the way that you see them, that we might appreciate, that we might love better, that we might walk through this world differently today. Lord, for all who feel unappreciated, we ask that your warm embrace might just surround them, that your arms might just hold them, that they might feel your love. And Lord, we ask that the people in, in, the, in their lives might see them afresh today. And Lord, I ask that we not, might not just be passively hoping for that embrace from those around us, and, but that you might, with your embrace, encourage us to get up and show up for those in our lives that are around us. That we might make people feel seen, make them feel heard. Lord, we ask that we might honor you, not just in our, our behaviors, but in our hearts. Look in our hearts today, examine us, show us what still needs to be changed, show us what boxes still need breaking open, and just help us to live after your will. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.